The other issue that we know now that we have the consequences of the earthquakes is that it's the local Syrian NGOs who are there on the ground, completely overwhelmed by the scale of the needs around them. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode is brought to you by the University of Denver's Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Corbell graduates make the world a better place, working toward global solutions in climate change, international security, economics, development, and diplomacy. 95% of Corbell students get jobs after graduation, and Corbell alumni are power players around the world. Learn more about the seven different degree programs offered at the University of Denver Joseph Corbell School of International Studies by visiting corbell.du.edu. The devastating earthquake in southern Turkey is going to require a massive humanitarian response. But the contours of that response will be vastly different in Syria than in Turkey. Prior to the earthquake, the population in northwest Syria was already in dire straits. The very parts of Syria that were hardest hit by this earthquake are those that are under the control of Syrian rebel groups and where there is active fighting. Now we have an epic humanitarian catastrophe layered on top of an epic humanitarian catastrophe, all in the dead of winter. The problem is that there is no straightforward way to reach much of northwest Syria with the volume of humanitarian relief that people there deserve. This is not so much a logistical challenge, but a political one, as my guest today, Vanessa Jackson, explains. Vanessa Jackson is the UN representative for CARE International, a large international humanitarian relief organization with operations in the region. We kick off discussing the expected humanitarian needs in the coming weeks and months before having a longer conversation about why geopolitical rivalries and the ongoing war in Syria will profoundly complicate relief efforts going forward, all to the detriment of people who urgently need help. This conversation is obviously very timely and will give you really helpful context for understanding some of the key challenges to relief efforts in Northwest Syria going forward. And speaking about timeliness, one of the many rewards you will receive for becoming a premium subscriber is early access to this episode and episodes going forward. Premium subscribers get new episodes several days before everyone else, in addition to unlocking our huge archive of past episodes. To become a premium subscriber, please visit patreon.com slash global dispatches. Or if you're listening to me right now on Apple Podcasts, you can 
become a premium subscriber directly in the app. We really appreciate your support. If you're on the fence about becoming a premium subscriber, I strongly encourage you to do so. You help keep the lights on around here and help us be able to do what we do and what we have been doing so consistently, two episodes a week, every week for the last 10 years and hopefully 10 more years at least going forward. But it requires your support. So please do become a premium subscriber. Thank you. Now here is my conversation with Vanessa Jackson of Care International. What do you expect the humanitarian needs to be in Turkey and Syria in the coming weeks? There's probably a, a great difficulty to put any figures on things at the moment because the figures are rising exponentially as access improves and we start to get information verified. But we are expecting the needs to dramatically, if not astronomically, increase in the coming weeks, just because particularly in northwest Syria, it was already a protracted crisis. It's an active war zone. People have been displaced multiple times and their coping mechanisms were really very, very stretched. So for them to now have mass displacement even less utilities and ability to meet their most basic needs. We know that the demand for assistance for people just to sustain themselves in winter conditions and snow is going to be well beyond the capacity that any of us have right now. I wonder if going forward in the coming weeks as the humanitarian response unfolds, if you foresee this as almost being two distinct humanitarian crises, one within the borders of Turkey and the other within the borders of Syria, simply for the fact that, as you noted, the people on the Syrian side of the border have already been displaced many times and have already been suffering a humanitarian crisis, whereas those on the Turkish side, while including many millions of Syrian refugees, arguably in difficult circumstances, don't have that compounding factor. And also, they are in a territory controlled by a strong central government with major allies around the world. I think that is a fair assumption to make. And we're already seeing the Turkish government has a capacity to deal with an emergency situation like this that is in a very different dimension to what's possible in Syria after more than a decade of conflict. And as you alluded to, there are, particularly in the northwest of Syria, the humanitarian access dilemma was already very stark, where you have whole communities that are not under the control of the government of Syria, they are under the control of other armed groups. And those, particularly around Idlib, have been experiencing ongoing conflict and all the human suffering that goes with that. So, yeah, I think we need to be very realistic about the fact that there are going to be communities in northwest Syria that cannot depend on their government 
to come to their assistance and it really is the international community. It really is Syrian NGOs who are already there on the ground that communities will look to to help them try to get through this almost impossible situation that they're facing. You and I have discussed in the past the very difficult politics and diplomacy of delivering humanitarian aid from the Turkish side of the border to the Syrian side of the border. Could you just remind listeners of the role that the Security Council has played in maintaining humanitarian access from Turkey to Syria over the past several years? Yes, it has been really a leadership role that the Security Council has had to play because of the fact that you have a civil war in Syria. The UN was very clear that it looked to the Security Council to give it the authorization to cross into Syrian territory without the consent of the Syrian government purely to meet the humanitarian needs of the people that were not going to be reached by their own government. And when that authorization was first granted back in 2014, the Security Council authorized four separate crossing points, one from Jordan, one from Iraq, and two from Turkey. And as the conflict deepened in Syria, we saw Russia become a very active party to that conflict. The politics in the Security Council, given Russia's permanent seat in the Security Council, its ability to wield a veto over resolutions it did not support, has meant that we've ended up eight years later that we've gone from four crossings down to one because Russia, often with China, has used its veto power to block efforts by other council members to keep all of these crossings open and to continue to maximise humanitarian access, particularly for northwest Syria, where the needs are continuing to rise. Almost year on year, there's at least a million more people in northwest Syria who have humanitarian need, who depend on that huge volume of aid that is coming across this one border crossing that's left for the UN, which is called Bab al-Hawa. So it's very much started out as a very united council agreeing that the humanitarian needs were such that this extraordinary step would be taken where the UN Security Council would allow United Nations agencies to go into the territory of government without their consent. And we're now in a very different place where the government of Syria, with the backing of the government of Russia, are really trying to take back that control over humanitarian delivery into all parts of Syria, where you have the Syrian government saying everything should be coming through Damascus. We are the sovereign government. We control most of this territory. This is our responsibility under international law. We don't want any of this cross-border assistance to continue. And thankfully, the majority of Security Council members, with Russia and China agreeing, just in January, reauthorized for the next six months the humanitarian aid to continue to come cross-border by UN agencies. And in addition to that, the other factor that is really important to understand is that 
international NGOs like my organization CARE are able to operate cross-border. We don't need a Security Council resolution to do that. We have a humanitarian imperative. So we are able to use multiple crossings to get into the northwest of Syria and the northeast to deliver humanitarian aid. So it was, though, the case that when this earthquake struck, there was just one UN-authorized border crossing where agencies like UNICEF, UNHCR, the World Food Program could deliver aid. But you, you know, not being a UN entity, you're a, a private organization, you can use other crossings. Is the scale of the aid delivered by private INGOs like CARE less than that that the UN can deliver? Like, does the UN have more capacity than private NGOs? And is that why it was important to have multiple crossings opened? Yeah, there are many other value adds that the UN coordination, the ability of the UN to procure goods that NGOs can't. And one really good example is vaccines. And we saw that very clearly when COVID-19 was heavily impacting Syria. We were all, we being all the INGOs, were all looking to the World Health Organization. It had the cold chain facilities. It had the ability to buy the volume of vaccines that was needed. So there are these things like procurement, coordinating access, negotiating access for all the other humanitarian partners. And I think really importantly in the case of Syria was the ability of the UN to set up what we call pooled funds. So governments from around the world who wanted to assist the humanitarian response in Syria could give small or large amounts of money to the UN. It would go into a pooled fund and the UN would then distribute that money and a lot of it was able to go directly to Syrian NGOs who are the ones in Syria on the front lines doing the distribution with the trusted relationships and access to communities that nobody else could reach. And so that's why there's always been such a strong, united voice from international NGOs, from Syrian NGOs when we come to these negotiations in the Security Council. Now it's on a six-monthly basis but we've all been really clear that if that final crossing closes, the pooled fund doesn't exist. Syrian NGOs will literally lose funding from one day to the next. And we will see a collapse of the ability of any humanitarian response to be fully functional in Syria when the needs are higher than they've ever been at any time in the conflict. So that's why the UN's role is so crucial and it's not something that NGOs are able to scale up. Even if the donors gave all the money in the world to us that we needed, we just don't have the capacity and the logistics and the setup and the staff to come in and fill the shoes of the UN. So in the coming weeks, then it's fair to assume that, you know, once fully operational roads are repaired, that the Bab al-Hawa crossing will be the key point for aid to get to parts of Syria that are hard hit by the earthquake. But it's my understanding that the other border crossing, the one that Russia forced closed a couple of years ago, I believe in 2020, is 
nearer to some of the hardest hit areas, but that is one that I take it that CARE and other NGOs use, but one that is off limits to the UN right now. Is there any diplomatic or political momentum as a consequence of this earthquake to reopen discussions about opening that border crossing? You're absolutely right about the fact that the crossing, it's called the Bab al-Salam crossing. It goes from Turkey into northern Aleppo, which is obviously very, very badly hit by the earthquake. We are starting to hear that there may be a conversation amongst some council members. Is this such a catastrophe that we really do need to rethink the resolution in the council? And I mean, the response from organisations like CARE is consistent. All along, we have said we need to have more humanitarian access into northwest Syria, not less. And if we now have a crisis on a crisis on a crisis with this earthquake and all of the consequences that that may set in train, we are going to more than ever need to expand the humanitarian access. And if UN agencies are willing to use that crossing and to advocate for that crossing to be reauthorized for them, that is the most efficient and direct route into communities in Aleppo. And I think it's really clear the shortcomings of the limited access that the UN currently has. When we look at the situation now with the one crossing that is still open, it hasn't been able to be used since the earthquakes happened because the roads from Turkey into Syria are so badly damaged that the convoys can't cross. So communities in northwest Syria right now are not getting additional humanitarian aid from the UN agencies. They're hoping that that crossing will be operational tomorrow, which is the 9th of February. But it just goes to show how tenuous the UN's access is into Syria when we have an incident like this take out of action that critical lifeline that the UN is depending on. Also, it's fair to say that a need for a Security Council resolution would be obviated if the government of Syria simply consented to the cross-border delivery of aid via that second crossing near Aleppo, right? I mean, all that's required is the government of Syria to say, sure, send in your, your food, your medicines, your tents. That's right. I mean, the Syrian government has written to the United Nations and made a formal request for international humanitarian assistance, but it comes with a caveat. And that caveat is that any assistance for Syria has to go through Damascus and the government will facilitate it and the government will decide where it goes, who receives it, when they receive it, etc. And we know from the last few years of the UN working with Damascus to try and open up what we call cross-line access into northeast and northwest Syria, it's been extremely fraught. So these are convoys of humanitarian aid that the UN operates from Damascus that go up into northwest Syria. And those convoys only started happening in July 2022. And we've only been seeing about one convoy a month actually getting through from Damascus up into Idlib. 
And those are small convoys. They're maybe 15 trucks and it's once a month. So it really doesn't compare to the enormity of the scale of the humanitarian aid that can come across the border where we're looking at 500 to 600 trucks a month, not 15. So if we're talking about scaling up the response, yes, by all means, please, everything should be done that's possible to scale up the cross-line response because it is very small, but we also need to have the effort going into scaling up the cross-border response and opening up that response beyond one crossing. And the government of Syria tomorrow can just consent to border crossings with aid if it wanted to, right? Yes, that's its sovereign power. I mean, I could editorialize here that it's a little disingenuous for the government of Syria to insist that they want humanitarian aid, but not the aid that is closest to the place in need just because it happens to cross through rebel-held territory. But, you know, you're Mm -hmm. a humanitarian. You don't have to respond to that. I wanted to ask you also about the role of sanctions, particularly U.S. and EU sanctions on the Syrian government and how that may or may not complicate or impact the humanitarian response. I should begin by saying I am not a sanctions expert, but this is a perennial question that is discussed in the Security Council whenever the issue of humanitarian assistance comes up, because Russia and China are convinced that the humanitarian crisis in Syria is predominantly caused by unilateral sanctions. So sanctions that governments like the US or the UK have imposed on Syria as a result of the conduct of the war. And I think it's really difficult to unscramble that egg and identify what is the cause and effect of sanctions versus what is the cause and effect of the way the war has been waged. And the governments like the US and and the UK, the EU, are very consistent in their response to countries like Russia and China saying, we have built in humanitarian exemptions into those sanctions. That is ensuring that organisations that are doing humanitarian assistance can conduct their business, can get access to financial services and international banking transactions, etc. So it's a perennial discussion, but I think the bigger issue really is the scale of the humanitarian needs. And just to outline that really briefly, in a country of about 22 million people, Syria now this year has over 15 million people who depend on humanitarian assistance. And I think there may be some impact that is due to sanctions, but the bulk of it is because 90% of people living in Syria today are living in poverty because of the impact of the war, the collapse of the Syrian pound, the fact that the country's infrastructure has been decimated by the conflict, hospitals and schools have been targeted. The list goes on and on about why Syria is so heavily impacted by this conflict. On the sanctions question, I mean, first of all, does CARE support the cross-line delivery of aid, that is aid that is routed through Damascus and through negotiations between the government and humanitarian actors and rebels are able to reach 
you know, rebel held areas across lines of conflict as opposed to across the border? Our position for care is that we support all forms of humanitarian access that are able to address the needs of people on the ground. We believe there are challenges with the cross-line operation. For example, it's very dangerous for convoys to be travelling across active war zones and front lines. There's a huge dilemma when it comes to assessing the needs of the people that those convoys are trying to reach because we are not convinced that the community's needs are really known and assessed and monitored And that's a really important component of providing a principled humanitarian response that really meets international standards. If you're not asking the communities what they need and making sure that they get the things that are priorities for them, that's not necessarily quality humanitarian assistance. And so that's where there are still big question marks hanging over the cross-line assistance that does manage to get through. Who is receiving it? Is everyone who is vulnerable and in need receiving it without discrimination? You know, those are questions that have not satisfactorily been answered by the Syrian government. So going forward in the coming weeks, what do you foresee as being some of the key political or diplomatic obstacles or questions or challenges that need to be resolved in order for groups like CARE and your humanitarian partners, both at the UN and other NGOs, to adequately and robustly fill the needs on the ground in Syria? I think one of the really big ones is the funding question. And it's unfortunate that it will be a question about money and who's getting it and who needs it the most, who can make the most use of those funds. But we know that Last year, for example, the humanitarian response plan that the UN draws up every year was less than half funded. So the UN said we need $4.4 billion to meet the needs that are on the ground in Syria, but it was only able to fund half of that or less than half of that. And the other issue that we know now that we have the consequences of the earthquakes is that it's the local Syrian NGOs who are there on the ground, completely overwhelmed by the scale of the needs around them, who need to be able to provide cash to communities and families to buy the essentials that they need, to be able to pay their staff and to buy the goods that they need, whether it's generators or access to fuel or warm clothes and winterization products, more tents, etc. That's really where the quality funding needs to be able to reach those organisations. And that is a challenge for the UN because a lot of the funding systems are designed to channel the money through the UN agencies. But we know that there are really good examples of other situations where a rapid onset emergency like this, for example, in Afghanistan, where the UN was able to come together and agree that one UN agency would take all of that money and would allow it to pass through itself and go then into the coffers of the local Afghan NGOs. So there are precedents. It can be done. The UN has demonstrated that, and that's really what we need to see now. 
And I think this morning the resident coordinator and humanitarian coordinator for Syria spoke to the press in New York and did mention the prospect of the situation actually getting worse for Syrians. If we are not able to get in some of the aid and clean water, access to clean drinking water and basic hygiene for people is a real priority. Syria did have a cholera outbreak last September and there is a real risk that that could return if people aren't able to have access to clean water. I saw that press briefing. It was it was sobering. Yeah. So we are not necessarily convinced that the situation cannot become more complex and more dire. And that is why I think the imperative, getting back to your question, what can the international community be doing? I think there is a responsibility on the Security Council to look ahead, to see what are the scenarios, what do we need to plan for? Is it realistic to continue to fund and authorise humanitarian access for these six-month windows? That is not going to be helpful. That is not the best approach for Syrians right now. They don't need to be worrying about what's going to happen in July and whether the UN will have no more access and the financial support to Syrian organisations will dry up. We need long-term assistance that's guaranteed, that people can plan around, that they can scale up their programs, they can employ more staff. Those are the kinds of things that I think people inside Syria will look to the UN to address and that that will require a unity amongst the Security Council to put the politics aside and look at the enormity of the calamity that has happened in Syria and what can the Security Council do to minimise the suffering and try to mitigate some of those potential risks that are looming already. Well, how likely is it that politics is put aside in the wake of this huge tragedy, just considering how fractious politics of the Security Council were going into this? I mean, have you seen in these past few days any indications that the Russians may soften their position, for example, on border crossings, or that the Syrian government may soften its position in one way or another? I haven't seen those indications as yet, but what I do take heart from was the fact that the council was able to come together only a few weeks ago in January and unanimously agree to extend the authorization for the UN for the one crossing that it does have. And that was something that was not predictable. Like there was a lot of anxiety from organizations, particularly inside Syria, that there might not have been a renewal at all. So I think we need to build on those positives, acknowledge that as fraught as the geopolitics are in the Security Council, we have seen Russia agree when it comes to things like the Ukraine crisis. They've agreed to the Black Sea Grain Initiative to make sure that the consequences don't result in a global hunger crisis that takes the impact of the conflict in Ukraine to the furthest corners of the world. So it's the potential for negotiators like Martin Griffiths, who's heading off to Gaziantep, and he is the top UN humanitarian emergency relief coordinator. Yeah, so I think he's heading into the region to have exactly these kinds of conversations and to 
make sure that we are not going to have the potential of a shutdown? What are these longer term solutions given that we are in a completely different place that no one could have predicted? This calls for extraordinary humanitarian diplomacy and a lot is riding on those discussions that he'll be having in the next few days. Vanessa, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. And also, I do want to extend my condolences. I do know that CARE has lost staff in this terrible tragedy. Yeah, thank you very much, Mark. That is unfortunately the case for us and and many of our peer organizations. So yeah, definitely thinking of our teams right now who are really struggling to try and keep delivering, keep focused when their own family and, and colleagues are really deeply impacted and there have been a lot of casualties that we don't even know the full scale of that right now. Well, thank you, Vanessa. Thanks very much, Mark. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash globaldispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts.